Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. It's pretty amazing how different my views are from what I thought my views were as I started to give myself that freedom. But I was on my knees when I started to look at this. It was step by step, inch by inch. I mean, crawling. Um, crawling. Well, any journey worth taking usually starts on your knees. Yeah. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Hey everybody, you're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts, I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Tallulah from Tori's third album, Boys for Pele. Tom. Well, hello. I didn't know how to introduce myself in the intro. I'm having a really hard time coming out of my Tom Berger Anderson character. Um, now I know how Tori felt probably during the Doll Posse tour. During. Am I Isabel? Am I Tori? Who I Clyde? am I? <laughs> I have no trouble taking off Chuck Woolerief and putting him back on when I need him. Well, you have a strong performance background. Yes, and I'm can... more about movement. <laughs> Tom Berger Anderson is clearly referencing August's Drive All Night Plus, where we played Wait, Wait, Don't Tour Me with six very worthy Tory fans and crowned a winner. And if you want to hear that, you can go over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos, and you can subscribe and listen to that episode you should definitely do that we had a lot of fun and we want to do it again we so. are going to do it again i agree it was a lot of fun you didn't think it was going to be fun you were nervous to do it right i'm i'm nervous about everything in, you're not in life yeah really <laughs> in general you're not nervous about doing Tallulah, are you i'm not nervous i'm excited i've actually been looking forward to this for a long time Tallulah, so, this yeah, song yeah, specifically yeah interesting mm-hmm. are you a glitter girl i've said goodbye to to a glitter girl oh you have yeah to the glitter girl i hope to be but never was oh david i know chin up girl we'll get into it you could still be a glitter girl i don't know oh. i'm actually relating to and processing this song differently at this point in your life in my life or in the- I am yeah really? yeah so, interesting i can't wait about to hear. that a little bit i still feel the same way about tula as i've always felt hate it <laughs> no i love it oh i'm sorry anyhow um how have you been since we last spoke i've been well you and i have both been very busy there's a lot happening there's a lot and it's happening. you know it's coming upon my crazy season my <laughs> time of year so i can oh, yeah. feel i can feel my powers starting to rise as the days grow <laughs> short oh david is a, a horror gay as we've termed it he loves Halloween. 
He's a hollow queen. Oh, you can use that on your other show, on your okay. podcast. Oh, thank you. Hollow queen. I'm going to have to get that in writing. Ho- <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, we're here to do Tallulah. I'm yeah. very excited. Um, we press ever onward on this incredible album, Boys for Pele. When did you first hear Tallulah Eve? Uh, I don't recall. Don't you? I think it was probably mid-January when the album came out. Mm. So you first heard the song on your first listen through the album? Mm-hmm. As did most people. Including myself. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Parallel Lives. When was the first time you heard it? I know it was the day the album was released, but yes. the question really embodies much more than that. Where were you emotionally? Tell me the circumstances surrounding the first time you heard Tallulah. Well... I remember, you know, that Tallulah was one of the songs featured on the sticker mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the front of the album. So you knew it would eventually be a single. Right. And it was, you know, a potential single. So as I was making my way through the track listing, I was very much looking forward to it because I was not feeling the album at all on first listen. And I was really, um, I was wanting something that seemed more familiar and like old Tory to me. So I was thinking, okay, we're approaching track 12 and this is going to be a single probably. So I'm hoping that that this will be, um, I don't know, something more familiar to me um, that will allow me to sort of access this album. So we get to it, and I'm like, here comes the single, and we've got more harpsichord, okay, fine. But then, like, the Glitter Girl intro and some of her vocals, which are fantastic, but, um, you know, her delivery on Say Goodbye to the Old World, where she really like, oh, I was really like, this? This is what they're going to push? Yeah, she basically girls it. So it was not at all, again, as this album never was, it wasn't giving me what I was expecting at any turn. So I was kind of disappointed by that too. Did it teach you to have no expectations? Yes. A good rule of thumb for life. Expect nothing. Be never disappointed. Never be disappointed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How about you? I loved Tori with the sound of the harpsichord. And this was another instance where it was just kind of naked, naked harpsichord. And it wasn't as freaky as Blood Roses. Like it didn't frighten me like Blood mm-hmm. Roses, even though like it didn't scare me, Blood Roses. I really liked the challenge of it, mm-hmm. of Blood Roses. I liked the harpsichord. So I really liked Tallulah. It was one of the ones I liked probably the most in the beginning. Well, it's probably the most upbeat song on the album. That's true. So, And even to the point when it, they released the Tornado version, I, li- I preferred the Glitter Girl version. I think I will always prefer the Glitter Girl version because of that Same. naked harpsichord. But yeah, I'm surprised to think that you sitting there, 17, 18, 20? 16. Okay, well, 16 thinking that you didn't like the song right away. Huh. Yeah, I didn't really like anything on the album right away. It was kind of a, a grower for me, for sure. And f- for most people. <laughs> a grower, not a shower. Think exactly right. Yeah. But then once it clicks, your life is forever changed and you find yourself talking about it 22 years later. <laughs> very timely. This podcast is very timely. <laughs> Let's talk about who we have on today's episode, shall we? Who do we have? Well, we have a plethora of guests today. Oh. We have Mark Mullins, who played trombone and did the horn arrangements on Tallulah. He'll be joining us later for a phone call. And then finally... At the end of the episode, we'll be talking to Mark Kaur, who directed a little music video called Tallulah. He directed that. So we'll be, we've got them all. We have all the Boys for Pele video stars, video directors. Anyone associated with the song in any way, we have. Right. Except Marie Antoinette, I guess. Exactly. All right, let's do it, yeah? Let's do, do it. it. And of course, thank you to Shay Stymack for putting the research together for this episode. Shay and Rachel are our research team, and they are golden Thank you, Shay. Thank you. You ready to congratulate mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. He, he. I think every time we cut to a new act, you should do that. He. Yeah. Okay, bye. We'll be back. He.
So here's a remix. It's the Haunted Winds remix by a group called Need. Shay, our wonderful researcher, pointed us in the direction of this remix. Enjoy. on the record that holds the space for permission to dance <laughs> and as the record m- moves on with the story once we get to Tallulah where she's placed there's been so much grieving there's been so much acknowledgement finally after Jupiter when um, she knows it's over whatever it is but she knows that she can't go back and things aren't just gonna you can't pretend that certain events haven't happened once they've happened in in a relationship. And um, I think we travel further into Little Amsterdam. We go down south, which is really symbolic for um, the primal, the primitive, and the lies and the um, really the domination. Little Amsterdam is so essential to release that place before we can finally say we went back to the childhood we went back to the south to the bloodline where there's so much hierarchy and now it's time to just let her dance i don't think you need it eve but i want you to know that you have my permission to dance and i hope you dance (laughs) oh how i'll dance how i'll (laughs) dance um i'm very excited to talk about Tulula. let's get to it Tulula uh appears on Boys for Pele as track number 12. It also appears on the following many, 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 many things. 
It appears on the Boys for Pele cassette sampler, if you have it. That's an official release. It appears on the Caudalite Sneeze promo CD sampler. That's an official release. Um, it appears on the Tallulah 12-inch vinyl promo single. Promo, official release. One side, the BT's Synesthesia mix. One side, the Tornado mix. Of course, the UK singles, the cassette singles. It appears famously in the Twister movie soundtrack. Did you like that movie? I saw it several times in the theater. And maybe part of that was motivated by the fact that Tori was on the soundtrack. Right, and you can actually right. hear the song. It's playing on a radio in the background of a scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I remember asking one of my sister's friends to take me to the record store to buy the soundtrack because Tori was on it. And she was like, oh, Tori, I love her, blah, blah, blah. And that friend was going up into my estimation, in my estimation, until I figured out that she was confusing Tori and Jewel. Oh, my God. Don't tell Tori that. Don't tell Tori that. I would never. Um, It also appeared on the CD Maxi single, the Hey Jupiter and Professional Widow vinyl single, and the Boys for Pele deluxe edition. That is an overwhelming number of places that the yeah. song was featured, even just from 1996. I know, but never on the greatest hit, on the Tales of a Librarian. It oh. wasn't there. It wasn't on uh, Gold Dust. It wasn't on any of the official live releases. Yeah, you're right. It hasn't appeared on any kind of compilation except for a piano, I guess. No, it's not even on a piano it's at all. It's not even on a piano. Yeah, no, of course not. It's Tallulah. Not, I guess we did want to lose ya. Oh, shit. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Well, it must be worth losing. Maybe we'll find out after the line by line. That's where a lot of things reveal themselves. Shocked that it's not on a piano now that I think about it. Yeah, it's interesting that she would totally neglect a legit single that had a video. Don't get me started. (laughs) From Music Week, December 16th, 1996... Tori says, Tallulah is a grown-up nursery rhyme, and it's about finding joy when you're losing everything. Isn't that good? If I'd gone into the song expecting a grown-up nursery rhyme, I think I would be disappointed. Really? Yeah. Why? I want something, like, nasty. Oh. <laughs> a grown-up nursery <laughs> a grown rhyme. A grown-up nursery rhyme. An, an adult <laughs> nursery rhyme. Well, you've always been a perv. Notorious, notorious perv. Notorious pervert. This quote is from Making Music, January 1996. In Tulula, I'm begging this concept of ideal woman to come alive in myself. Feeling afraid of losing someone. If it matters, it must be something worth losing. Each song began to be a piece of claiming myself. Okay, so it's interesting that we have lost so much after Hey Jupiter, she says. There's no going back. Whatever it is, you've lost it. The idea that you've lost it all and you've stripped yourself of all this stuff. What does a baby do? You know, like baby dance, like legs. I don't know. There's something very... Are you picturing Tori as the Ally McBeal dancing baby now? No. (laughs) I'm picturing you when you're at your most empty, how you respond to it. Once you have nothing. So a baby is like an empty, soulless void? No! Stop it. That springs to life when it hears music? No. okay. So she says in that quote, if it matters, it must be something worth losing. What does that mean to you? What that means to me is you get to a point where you've sort of processed enough grief where you're able, there's like a little crack in the door where you're at least able to start looking at an experience as something that may have helped you grow or brought something into your life rather than just mourning what was. It's funny to me, though, and even in the song, when I think about it, it's funny to me that she doesn't say, must be worth holding on to, or something like that, you know, on that side of thing. It must be worth losing. It was worth losing if it is worth something. Which is maybe sort of a play on better to have loved and lost. Oh, yeah, interesting. So... From B-Side Magazine in May, June 1996, referencing Hey Jupiter, Tori says, that's where the whole record turns on its axis. And that's a quote we've used again and again. 
Little Amsterdam, which is all metaphorical about wanting to kill people, being angry at people that you feel have done something, the whole domination thing, the whole hierarchy, patriarchy, and her way to fight back. And they are blaming her, but it wasn't her bullet. She still believes it would have been fine if they lost him. And it keeps moving into the dance of Tallulah and her desperately trying to dance, desperately trying to figure out the whole idea of loss. It must be worth losing if it is worth something. So I feel like I am losing something. At least I valued something enough to lose it in the first place. It's going back into that train of thought. Tallulah is very much a riddle. So at least I, I want to talk about that part. At least I valued something enough to lose it in the first place. To me, if you're talking about the context of relationships, right? I think she's talking about Eric here. Fair? Yeah. So if you're talking about the context of relationships, I've been, when I've been in, there's a couple of relationships in my life that when they're over, it's devastating. You're like crawling on on your knees because that phone is not ringing or whatever, right? But then there are other people you break up with. It's like you move on instantly. Like the next day, you're kind of like over it, right? Yeah. So I wouldn't call those a loss, but I would call the devastating ones a loss, right? So at least I loved something enough to lose it. Sure. To experience a loss. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, obviously not all relationships are created equal. So. Right. So at least I gave of myself enough. At least I gave my heart or I don't know. Yeah. And I think that's another way of saying, wasn't I lucky to have been able to experience um, a relationship with this amount of depth where I cared this deeply about someone and that I had the capacity to do that. And they also had the capacity to... Uh, mirror that back to me Mm -hmm. that's rare i guess so even though it ended painfully let's say i'm still i'm still glad that i was able to live that yeah elegantly stated thank you as you were saying that i was thinking like well it's taken us a really long time to get through boys for pele the podcast and i'm how it's fine i like to live in the boys for pele world i'm gonna be happy to be finished with boys for pele because i'll feel complete in a way you know that we've done all the episodes i'll feel very good Mm -hmm. But it's funny, like, my life has changed so much in the two years, the year and some some change, you know? And back when we started, I had come out of a relationship, and I was kind of not wanting ever to do it again. But today, when I, I've been, like, chatting with this guy, and today I, like, realized, oh, you know what? I even said to you, we went to a restaurant with Shaggy before we did this, and I said, like, I'm going to stop looking at the criminal element and try to find someone who actually can commit to an adult relationship, and that's the first time like I felt comfortable saying that out loud and like believing that maybe I do want a relationship again. And it feels funny from to come to say that to realize I want a relationship and then to come in and do this episode. You know, you're starting the healing process. Believe me, that was not lost on me. And I didn't want to say too much. I just wanted to let you talk because I didn't want to break the spell. <laughs> I was just sort of observing this happen. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like I'm ready for a relationship. I feel I'm ready to give myself. You think you just needed some time off? I think I needed to figure out who I was and like... Reclaim the pieces of your womanhood? Yeah. I mean, honestly, and I think that's what this album is about, obviously. And when you, if you even go back to what you said about the whole album turns on its axis and you didn't know what that meant for the second half of the album that you lost the narrative thread. And I've always thought of it as like the rest of the album's about healing, but I'd never gone too far into it in my head. I think we begin by dancing, you know, we begin by uh, like shaking it out and just forgetting the trouble of it all. Yeah, I really love the way you said that. And that sort of made things clear to my mind that it's turned on its axis because she knows that going forward, her relationships or the way she reviews her relationships, the way she derives her self-worth maybe from the men in her life will never be the same. And that's how it's turned on its axis. Yeah. And isn't that something we all have to learn, Mm -hmm. Efren? 
The quote from B-Side Magazine continues on. She says, we just cleared a large rock and I have to speak up. You can delude yourself into worrying about was it really worth losing? Was it really worth anything? Or did I just want it to be? The sense of loss is such a tricky one because we always feel like our worth can grow with things we are willing to lose. So there's a real letting go. Tallulah is about letting go and getting the dance. I do not want to lose him. She abruptly pulls the tiller back to her own personal experience. She says, the loss of Eric in my life was... It felt like half of me walked out the door, and Tallulah came as a nursery rhyme, my little dance that I would do when things were so sad, because I started thinking, but God, I have these feelings, which means we shared so many moments that I value. I really valued that, so what a gift that I can feel this loss, that I am not so numb, that I haven't cut myself off so much, and once I could feel the loss, then I started to feel free. I want to dance and go, yeah, I want to be with Tallulah. I want to be able to dance through the people that come in and go out of your life. I want to learn how to dance with the gifts when they come and the gifts when they need to take a different route. Wow. That is absolutely one of my favorite Tory quotes, period, really? I think. And that has really stuck with me, I think, especially the last bit. I want to learn how to dance with the gifts when they come in and the gifts when they need to take a different route. That's really beautiful. I agree. <laughs> I mean, it's a song from Wicked, right? Mm -hmm. People come into your lives for a reason and you're forever changed, mm -hmm. but... But it's true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. 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 And not everyone is meant, I'll say, meant to be in your life for forever. Sometimes they blow into your life briefly and exit and you don't know exactly why at the time. But in hindsight, you can kind of see how you needed that experience or you grew from it or whatever that was. So Very well stated, Tori. Thank you. <laughs> that was me, Tori. <laughs> <laughs> She's here, ladies and gentlemen. We got her. <laughs> so you said... You were initially put off by the harpsichord in the song and just the tone of the song because you expected it to be a single, you expected it to be a cornflake girl or a pretty good year, something that you could like hold on to as being classic Tori and you weren't necessarily prepared for the change in her sound, yeah, um, and whereas I, I was challenged by it and thrilled. I wasn't necessarily put off by the harpsichord. I was familiar with the harpsichord. I liked the sound of it. But even at 16, I was thinking like, really, you're going to try to push in all two, I guess, all harpsichord singles <laughs> to radio? That seems crazy. And Cotolite Sneeze... You should have worked for Atlantic. I know, right? And Cotolite Sneeze made a little bit more sense to me. It sounded more commercial. But um, well, I guess we ended up getting the tornado mix. So they felt that it was necessary to remix the song because when you hear it, it's very, there's like clear cowbell in there, I want to say. And it's definitely, I'll walk back my prior statement that I don't hear a lot of Southern influence on other songs post Little Amsterdam. There is that. And yeah. it's almost like honky tonk yeah. isn't the right word. No, I get it though. It's like bluegrass not. Fun. Yeah. Blue, in a thank weird. you. That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I love it. It's unlike anything anyone else has ever done. It's so thank true. You. Yeah. A harpsichord, honky tonk, bluegrass pop song yeah 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 so i hope you appreciate it now and i'm sure you do oh my god i love it where did you switch what was the turn for you was it the remix allowed you access into the song mm. and then you started to appreciate the song no i don't remember exactly when i came around and it wasn't that i necessarily just came around to this particular song but there was a point in time where the whole album clicked for me and i couldn't even put myself in the headspace I'd been in when I first listened to it, where I was like, this album is not catchy. There aren't really any hooks or melodies here. And it's so sparse and it's so dark. Like suddenly I was like, this all makes sense and it's beautiful and incredible. And this is amazing. But for whatever reason, this album out of all Tori's albums, and I'm sure this is a lot of people's experience, took the longest to seduce me, yeah. I'll say, or right. I had to feel my way into it. That's fair. Whereas Under the Pink was love at first bite. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I loved the idea of her challenging, that it was always changing. And there's a quote somewhere where she says, 
you know, my audience comes for a challenge. And as long as I keep challenging myself, they'll still, I think they'll still keep coming. We'll keep jumping off cliffs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. So, and I always really believed that to be true because I felt like she changed so much at each record, you know, and, and we'll see that as we go into the later, the next few records, how she does change drastically with each record. And this is kind of the beginning of that. So I was really into the harpsichord. Speaking of harpsichord, do you want to read this quote from Launch.com, the story of Tori? I have never wanted to read anything more. Okay, this one specifically talks about the harpsichord. So the interviewer asks, you also play the harpsichord, right? And Tori says, yeah, it was tricky to learn the harpsichord. I haven't had the time to practice and I have to get my chops back or it's going to be quite embarrassing. It's a difficult instrument. It's quite demanding. It takes so much skill for me anyway. It's really challenging for me to pull it off, but at the same time, it's thrilling because it's never like, oh, this is a breeze. It's not like that. I think it's like good mountain biking. If you have a good mountain, you can fall off at any time. It's really about your skill that gets you through the mud and over the mountain. And we've talked before about how she had to relearn how relearn the harpsichord because she did play it occasionally in the conservatory. I'm fascinated by that because it's obviously like a keyboard instrument that's very similar to the piano. It's not like she's it's the mother of the to, piano to play the trombone right. or something <laughs> or the guitar. Could you imagine? But the keys are, uh, I guess. I mean, Yanta will tell us, please. But the keys, there's something like what are they? They're smaller, mm-hmm. lighter to the touch. Like yeah. You just, yeah and no she was sustain. playing a double manual, right? So it's like a double a double deca. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Um, let's play a clip from Modern Rock Live. Here's a little bit about Manu Kache, who played the drums. This is from February 4th, 1996. Somebody that really influenced me recently was Manu Kache, the drummer. Uh, maybe um, you're familiar with him. He's one of known as one of the great drummers alive now. He's played with Peter Gabriel, and he's played with Sting. He's played with loads of people. Mm-hmm. And the way that he listens to rhythm, I watched him. He played on on Pele, and he was trying to... I would just watch him. And as I watched him play, and I would have to sneak outside, right, because he wouldn't let anybody be in there, and he wears these blue sunglasses when he plays. And, you know, he's Parisian. He's Northern African Parisian. And so he just looks down at you, and um, you feel totally inferior when he's... But I went outside, and I snuck. One of the sound guys said, um, Dora, check it out. You've got to watch the way he plays. Look, he wears his shades on when he's playing, and they don't fall off his face. I said, okay, let's go check it out. So we race outside, and I'm, I'm on top of their shoulders because I can't see through the window. I'm too little. So they lift me up, and I practically fall in, and he looks up, and it's like, get out of my space, Get out of here. And yet he smiled this smile. And he's like, if I knew you were going to, uh, to go to all this trouble, I would have just like let you in. But what he showed me was how um, it's so effortless. Rhythm is just the breath. I've always um, thought about it as a piano player, but to see when a drummer feels the breath. And the air is so much a part of the sound, how they bring that arm back. And it's within, you know, milliseconds when they hit that snare, it's like, oh. I mean, when they get it right, there's nothing more delicious the way that they just, oh, lay it in there. You feel like you're 
getting driven by this 18-wheel truck, and it's fantastic. She's really experimenting as a producer with other musicians. Under the Pink has drums, obviously. God, Cornfit Girl, a few other things. But never, I, I mean, now she's starting to integrate it in a way. Like, she's not yet playing with other players, but the rhythm is becoming really important on certain tracks. You know, like Caudalite Sneeze, that rhythm, even though it's not necessarily drums that are creating the rhythm, but the drum tra- but the drum loop is so much a part of that sound. I'm still fascinated and unclear on exactly what the process was for pulling this album together. Um, and if it was more of a collaboration with these musicians as she was recording her piano, or in this case, harpsichord and vocal, or if she did all of her stuff, let's say, and then handed it over to the drummer and was like, you know, figure something out to go along with this. And what a challenge that would be yeah. if he has this complete track and has to play over it. Not only match her, but, you know, stylistically integrate yeah, and also influence the song, be important in the song, not yeah. just be superfluous. So I'm wondering, like, in her mind when she was doing her her piece, like, if if she has any concept of what the completed version of the song will sound like or if there's still so much room for collaboration and interaction at this point like how much direction is she giving the other players like i don't i don't know the answer to that but that's another reason why i would love to get my hands on all that footage from the epk because i'm just endlessly fascinated by how this album was made that process yeah i think it's like that because there's a quote around the choir girl era where she talks about how up till now she's always completed the track and given it to the other players to add their stuff. Mm -hmm. But with Choir Girl, she started to actually play with other people in the room. So that was new to her then. So I really feel like Manu probably got a complete track. And we tried to get Manu Keche, by the way. Very busy. Very busy. Hard to pin You can't catch a Keche. David's got one for anything I say. I don't. Okay, our next quote is from Vox UK, May 1996. Sarah McLaughlin's debut album. <laughs> Vox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tallulah was voted Song of the Month, and they said, The new single from Tori Amos' Boys for Pele album concerns the breakup of a relationship and the problems of male-dominated society. It also refers to voodoo, Sesame Street, and biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> Song of the Month. Stuart Bailey checks her pulse. Tallulah. Is she alive, David? Read the quote. When I wrote this, my mother was sitting in a chair... A chair, what a crazy place to sit. (laughs) Sorry. When I wrote this, my mother was sitting in a chair and I'd been playing for a few hours. She was fading in and out of sleep. I'd been going through some of my blood, guts, and widow's tunes. All of a sudden, I needed to breathe. I started playing Tallulah and it became like a breath because I needed freedom from all these songs that were showing me my monsters. Tallulah started to show me how to dance and my mother began to wake up. The song is really a riddle. Tallulah just came to me, telling me her name. A lot of the times, I'm just trying to interpret what I'm seeing on the other side. A name holds an energy like anything else. Look at Ruby Tuesday. I think Tallulah became about rhythm and tone and sensuality. It ain't fucking Catherine. There's something in there about West Indian dance, and yet it's a very classic name, too. Tallulah really just started to represent all women to me, women that let themselves dance for themselves. That's great. I love that she says women that let themselves dance for themselves which takes me back to a joey fatone song girls who dance with women just to get attention you know that song no. that's joey fatone right i, I don't, don't remember know. but it's somebody from nsync but that idea that this woman is dancing not for you not about you but for herself women who dance for themselves a friend of mine a really good friend of mine teaches haitian dance and it's just really when you watch her stuff it's just very uh, 
cleansing. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's not a better word for it. It's cleansing. And you know that brings to mind. Tori has said that up until this point in her life, she'd always been in a relationship. Mm-hmm. That's she'd that's gone nuts from man to man, and so in this case, she's trying to figure out how if she can be happy on her own, not in a relationship. I'm fascinated by people like that because I'm rarely in a relationship. Crazy to me when people say things like that. Like I go from one guy to another to another. I know, but I think 2019 is going to be your year. <sighs> it's 2018. It was, it was spoke, sadly. spoken aloud at the Del Taco. Well, we'll see what happens. I, this may be. This may all change tomorrow when I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, and thank God no one's there to deal you with it. You better not text me and further ruin my Monday by saying forget <laughs> everything I said. I, I'll try not. I'm to. back to looking at mugshots to find my next date, <laughs> which I've not done ever. From the Plain Dealer on Fourth of June, 1996, which is a Cleveland a paper in Cleveland, Ohio. The reporter says, yet through her emotional playing and breathy voice. Listeners often instinctively pick up on what she's saying, even if they don't have the background to pick up on the mythic references she uses. It's embarrassing. Tori says, that's what I've always believed. A song is only part lyrics, and for me, anyway, more than 50% music. Easy. There's so much subtext in the music that's part of the story. Mm. And once it's heard, she goes on, once you see it and feel it, and you're sitting in a room with the songs, no matter what sex you are, the songs expand, and you can't get away from them unless you leave the theater. So I believe you stop analyzing them, and you start feeling them. It's more like a painting. If you start picking a painting apart intellectually, you can't come from an emotional place that created the painting. Boys for Pele is such a metaphorical work, so you either take that journey, or you don't. Let's talk about that. Can I go back to the song is only part lyrics? Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the section where Tori mentions that for her, a song is only part lyrics. And for me, anyway, she says more than 50% music. Easy. Um, I think that's interesting because she said repeatedly that the music always comes first Mm -hmm. and that she has to hunt the words down. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of surprised that she's even splitting it evenly here yeah i think that's interesting particularly in the context of this song because i think this is one of not one of the rare examples where the music and the movement of the music itself is really telling and part part of the story and when tori talks about learning to dance this girl learning to dance there's like a halting structure to this song and we get to wrapped in your papoose your little fig newton and it stops abruptly and it goes into a different movement. And each time we hit the chorus, it's fleshed out a little bit. And there's more percussion. And there's more groove. Yeah. Until the last time she's really moving. Mm-hmm. And like you can, you know, that's when the dance starts. And yeah. like you can actually hear that in the music. And I think that's like really interesting. That's great. That's a great observation. I do like the way that it builds to be an all out dance finally by the time she raps. You know, the Tori Amos rap at the end. <laughs> Bit um, of a doubt. Yeah, by the time she gets to that part, she, and she's fully grooving, it's not about dancing, it's about the permission to dance, mm-hmm. getting the permission to dance, allowing yourself to dance. You've experienced such loss, such tragedy, such devastation that you yourself caused, fine, and, and allowing yourself to be free of that, finally. And I'm still here, and ultimately I think I'm all the better for having had yeah. this experience. Yeah. So... Okay, so let's get into the tornado version. She taught it changes. The song changes. Yeah, it goes from a bluegrass honky tonk pop song, which we've decided just today that it was, and now it is forever, to a sort of rhythmic tribal funky. I don't know that I would say tribal. You would call that tribal? No, like house, funky house, more electronic, like electronic tribal, not like tribal. Definitely of tribes. its time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Very nineties. Do you want to hear a little bit of Tori talking about the tornado mix? Hit it. Roll it, Oliver. I'm doing a remix right now on one of the tunes. 
Um, it's called Tallulah, and I'm doing the tornado mix. As we speak, they're remixing it in, in London. So wow. while we're playing other things, I'm rushing to the telephone to listen. And I'm going, no, blow that section. I want to add this other section that I just recorded in Holland on a dat and flew to them. Get rid of the bridge that's <laughs> on the record. She's fine for that, but now let's do a new bridge. Why not? Wow. That's an intense process, and it's also international, it seems, as well. <laughs> well... <laughs> It's, it's, again, it's about letting things continually develop as a writer, not having to keep something that when it's ready to shift and, and be something else. I have a question, and this is a serious question that I want to know the answer to, and I don't know the answer to. Mm -hmm. When you bought the CD, January 23rd, 1996, right? Presumably. It had a sticker and it said, contains Cotolite Sneeze, Tallulah, and, and putting, putting the, the damage, damage on. on. So they'd already pinpointed or earmarked those three songs, right? Yes. And you kind of knew that anyway about putting the damage on because she that was the first thing she played on that Jules Holland show. So it was the first thing she played. You kind of knew it was like the big lead even before Cotolite Sneeze. Well, I wasn't aware of that though because things weren't as accessible as they are now. So I wasn't getting UK broadcasts. My first exposure was SNL and she did Hey Jupiter. So I would have expected Hey Jupiter oh, to, to be, be pulled sticker? out. As, yeah. Okay. Right. Well, that's that's fair. Cotolite Sneeze. But it said Cotolite Sneeze to Lula. Were they earmarking this as a single, do you suppose? And this is a question I don't know the answer to. I'm just putting it out there. Were they earmarking this as a single before she was even remixing it? Because this quote that she just said from Modern Rock Live, that was from February 4th, 1996. So presumably the stickers were printed and packaged a week or two before the 23rd of January. So even a month before. And if she's mixing it right now on February 4th, I can't imagine... January 23rd, when the CD's coming out, she's having lunch with BT and they go into the studio on that day. So I'm wondering, were they going to release it as a honky-tonk? Like, that's just, I'm curious how that, the timeline of that played Yeah, out. I'm sure it had been earmarked, you know, when, I'll say, Atlantic got the album. And it was kind of a no-brainer because after Cotolite Sneeze, it was the only other really upbeat song on the album. And when you think about it, there are only a handful of songs, like yeah. maybe five, that are not solo piano yeah. or yeah. harpsichord that yeah. have some kind of percussion so unless you want to go with a, a little amsterdam or a, a voodoo this is definitely the next most obvious commercial choice even though it's a honky-tonk bluegrass <laughs> harpsichord jam maybe we figured out why atlantic was so mad right so yeah i would have to say that they had definitely earmarked this song and then we're trying to figure out what the hell they were going to do with it and i wonder if at that point they were sort of mandating remixes like if you want us to promote this thing or if you want to put a single out we can't do it with this version so you got to give us something else well yeah maybe and so i can hear them saying that she does you know she talks about how this song was unfinished uh she felt like when the album came out it was it was missing something still i mean whatever how do you feel about that I disagree because everything on Voice for Pele is perfect. How do you feel about it? I agree. And I mean, agree with her or agree with me? I agree with you. Okay. Good. And, you know, the tornado mix would have been totally out of place mm -hmm. on the album, even though she said that she prefers that version. Mm -hmm. Even so, though they put it on the album, too, when they re released it's, it. It sticks out like a sore thumb as much as the professional widow remix does the tornado the tornado mix has no business being on boys for pele <laughs> has no place you have no there. business here you have no place in the so underworld crazy somewhere else 
<laughs> um, the only thing, and I, I wouldn't say that I prefer it, but I do like the very first verse before the rhythm kicks in because they sort of amp up. There's some mandolin, Steve Cade oh, yeah. mandolin playing there, I think, and they bump it up in the mix and it gives it like some real extra zing mm-hmm. there <laughs> that I like. That's the only... Zing my me, only, Steve. Zing it. The only thing about the tornado mix that I prefer yeah. over the original. Although I didn't hate the tornado mix. I like the tornado mix as a mix. Yeah. As a single, I get why they remixed it. I was on board with it. I was super excited because when someone gets a remix in the 90s when you're like a teenager and someone gets a remix it's cool it's hot it's everything about remixing at the time was great yeah don't put it on my album don't put it there but you know i'll get the single agreed so what do you think about the eminem mix that we got later i'm fine eminem means mark and marcel right right Okay, I liked it. What do you I think? I love it. As I've said on the show before, I would take like a hundred alternate mixes of songs from this, era? this album. It's never enough for me. And I know a lot of people were sort of annoyed with the Boys for Pele reissue that they thought the Eminem mix differed, be another, differed like very a... little. And it took the spot of something else that we could have gotten there. Like, you know, God, we need that remastered Samurai. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would have loved to have Samurai. <laughs> Shut up, David. But I actually love the Eminem mix. And I, Obviously, it's not radically different, but right. it's definitely different to my ear. And yeah. I think that has become my favorite version well, because that's... it's the same song, obviously. But the bass and the percussion are a little punchier, I'll mm-hmm, say, more mm-hmm. robust. Yeah. I think it's really I think it's really great. And I love that we have it. I love that we have it. And it's so interesting to hear a song for 20 years, know a song, be in, have an intimate relationship with a song and then hear it with a different twist and that's what it because it's not so radically different you're able to you know there's just little things here and there that it changes kind of your perspective on it yeah and it's another window into the creative process like you can see them there in the studio experimenting like well what about this what if we just change this slightly and how do they decide like this is the ultimate version of this song that's what this song wants to be like i love i love being privy to that kind of conversation or that process as far as any artist is concerned but especially Tori obviously. I agree give me a hundred alternate mixes of every one of these songs yeah seriously no give them to me yeah like, no now. really can, yeah. We, can we do that <laughs> thanks um, and I do appreciate that she didn't replace the original version with the Eminem mix that it just was a bonus you know what I mean I appreciate that she honored Boys uh, for Pele I was really afraid that she was gonna George Lucas us but Tori said in a couple interviews like I wanted to be very I wanted to honor the album as it was originally presented and think god for that yeah good judgment good, good judgment. judgment tori that's why we love you girl approved here's another clip of tori talking about the tornado mix from knpt la june 12th 1996 lula the tornado mix it's funny because i didn't even know about um i was just doing the tornado mix because i was eating linguine one night with bt who is a great dance remixer and when I say dance, it's British, so it's very different from the American concept of the dance world. And uh, although they have that too, um, Brian reminds me a lot of Brian Eno, BT. His name is mm-hmm. Brian. And um, so he he and I just hooked up and he was going to do this remix. I was eating linguine with him with a fantastic bottle of, of Chardonnay. And we were in London. And he said to me, do you realize what the internet can do? I said, well, a little bit. I know that there's information there about anything. He said, no, do you understand that there are pages where people chase tornadoes? I said, no. He said, yes, people literally do this. They re- the real, you know, the real McCoy, not, mm-hmm. not 
the Hollywood version. And I said, come on, Brian, you're not serious. He said, I am. And I put down my linguine and I started singing to him at the table. He's chasing tornadoes. I'm just waiting calmly. Chasing her. Hey. He said, what is that? I said, I don't know. He said, well, let's do it. I said, it must go on Tallulah. So we ran to a studio that night at 2 o'clock in the morning with our bottle of Chardonnay and recorded it. And here it is. <laughs> and it's the second cut, I think. It's the... Uh, we've got the uh, Tornado mix edit and the Tornado album version. Album version. Album yeah. version's better. Okay. okay. I'm going to make so sure. This came about having nothing to do with Twister then. It nothing. Was all prior Absolutely to nothing. And they heard about it through Brian. Wow. <laughs> They they were calling him about, you know, because he's a hot remixer. Have you heard anything, anything that we should know about? He goes, well, Tori did this thing that you might be into. And then they listened to it and called us up. So we had no idea that this movie was happening. Um, this is from The Face, UK, October 1996. Brian Tranzo says, Everything is like a fucking Salvador Dali painting with Tori. Says Tranzo, speeding down the highway in Washington, D.C. Is that a criticism? I don't think so, but I read it like it was. <laughs> he sounds so annoyed. Tori Amos and B.T. grew up in the same rural area outside of Washington. The first of a series of similarities that started with them achieving childhood prodigy status at the piano and ended with them signing to the same record label. Now they're conspiratorial buddies. Brian the trance magician and Amos the intense unhinged banshee. I feel like Brian and I are married, she says intently. Yet we can still have husbands and wives. Gross. We didn't even try to get in touch with BT because we're saving a... it for blue skies. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's a bridge too far. No. I think we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> and we'll come to it at blue skies. So save your Tallulah BT questions. All right. This quote is from the Take to the Sky fanzine, issue nine, my favorite issue, from January 22nd, 1996. Steve Jenkins. Speaking about Pele says, I think it's your best, without a doubt. Troy replies, oh, Steve, that means a lot to me, actually. It does. I mean, I figure the way I see it that some critics love it and some critics hate it. But I figure a reaction is a reaction instead of it being just ignored. So love it or hate it, it's stirring things up. And that's why I'm just trying to not get swayed either way. I'm just trying to say, hey, you know, that's people's right. But I've got to get ready now to perform it live to the people that want to come and hear it. And there are people who do want to hear it. Believe me, Tori. They are out there waiting. Oh, that's... I'm thrilled. As you know, my rehearsals start. I wish I had more time to rehearse because the harpsichord isn't an instrument that you can just pick up after a few months of not playing it. So I tried to rehearse a couple of weeks ago, and then we start rehearsals again on the 10th of February. But I've got to fit a video in there. We're doing a dance mix of Tallulah next, like a jungle Caribbean thing. Good choice of single, actually, Tori. That's one of my favorite tracks on the album. To me, it was the most immediate. Oh, really? I'm working with BT on it. Not British Telecom. No, not British Telecom. He's a dance remixer. He's a talented guy from Washington, D.C. He's very interesting. So we'll see. I'm interested in trying different things, variations on themes, because the album is how I heard it. But if variations come in on certain songs, then I kind of think, wow, well, why not? Are you ready to finally get into the line by line, David? I think so, yeah. Yeah? Okay. Who the hell is she congratulating? You. Okay. Just learn how to receive, Eve. Said you had a double tongue. 
All right. What does a double tongue mean to you? Someone who talks behind your back. Yeah. Or someone who tells you one thing and does another. Or means another mm-hmm. or says another to someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love you, but I love you. It's very close to devil tongue too. I think we're, this is like the only line by line really where I feel like we're cheating a little bit because this is a rare instance where Tori actually provided essentially a line by line to a publication. <laughs> so we have some cliff notes. Balancing cake and bread and say goodbye to a little girl are that not a girl, not yet a woman moment Mm. where she's once again sort of setting sail full steam ahead into Mm -hmm. womanhood and Mm -hmm. not defining herself by the men in her life any longer. I agree with that. And that balancing cake and bread, you know, cake is obviously something sickeningly sweet almost with no substance um, as opposed to bread. So Tori says in Vox UK in May 1996, she says, that's my little moment of Ziggy Stardust, my Gary Glitter moment, an homage. It's one thing to be a glitter girl, but it's another thing to be all woman. And that's what Marie Antoinette desperately wanted. Marie Antoinette obviously let him eat cake. We've got that on the cake and bread. There's a little bit of the Marie Antoinette thing. The the girl who's all, all show, no substance, right? So she is saying goodbye to the girl who's all show and no substance. Yeah. And you know, things have, things have been turned on their axis. So she's never going back. Yeah. You don't want to lose She must be worth losing If it is worth something is Tallulah her? Is she Tallulah? I, yeah, Tallulah is, let's say, the the aspect of her personality that she's wanting to give permission to dance, I okay. think. Or Tallulah is the one who can dance, and uh-huh. she wants her inner Tallulah to come alive. Okay, I like that. You don't want to lose her. She must be worth losing. If it is worth something, she must be worthy of love. And, and you don't want to lose her. This experience is going to be painful, but you will ultimately grow from yeah. it once you're on the other side. And interesting, too, that the... The pronouns change. It goes yeah, from her yeah. to it to him. That's it, yeah. Is she looking at the story from both sides or is she just referring to any kind of situation or relationship in your life, romantic or otherwise, and this sort of encompasses all of that? That's not just about a guy or Well, men. she's working through all the things that she's lost. All maybe, the things. Or found, lost and found. David wasn't kidding. She does do a line mm-hmm. by line of this song. You want to read the quote about this line from Tori? Tori says, this person walking out the door, this affects me. At least I'm not so numb. And if you're numb, you can't dance. So it became this thing about celebrating loss because I value it and it's touched my heart and I'm hurting that it's going. At least it meant something to me. When Trent Reznor wrote Hurt, I hurt myself today to see if I could feel. I thought, hey, this girl feels, man. It's interesting that she brings him up. I don't know how to feel about that quote. And I vowed never to speak of him again. (laughs) To myself, I vowed that. But I can't deny his influence throughout this record. How do you take that? When he wrote Hurt, I hurt myself today to see if I could feel. I thought, hey, this girl feels, man. Mm -hmm. As if to say he doesn't feel or why is she relating herself and her feelings to his song? And that's interesting. That's all I'm going to say. I'm leaving it there. Do what you want with it. Thank you. Moving on. She's running on my we're probably in agreement that this is a new feeling. This is a new discovery. This is the first time she's letting her dance. So she's brand new to you. I have, <laughs> this is another one of my screen names, by the way. After the eternal fat man debacle, <laughs> I went from Mr. Zebra, a five, to brand new to you, number two, letter U, like I was fucking Prince. But I always interpreted this as 
you can always reinvent yourself. There's always another chapter. I can always be the next expression of myself, that it's not just all about that painful experience or this thing that happened to me or who I thought I was back then. It's like, thank God there's always a next phase of my life. I'll take this because I'm Native American. As Tori is, a papoose is the Native American word from the Algonquin tribe for baby, also used to describe an infant's sling. Um, She says something about uh, wrapped in your papoose. What does she say? Tori says, it's the Indian reference. She means Native American. It's the whole idea of the cycle, the rebirth. There's something being born within, which is the ability to let go. When a man you love walks out of your life and you have that ache, you feel not only can you love again, but can you love a son? The son or the daughter is the rebirth of the soul. Oh, that's interesting. And she had really wanted to have a baby. And she'd been, even during some of the Under the Pink Press, was talking about next up a baby. So it's interesting that she talks about the son or the daughter being a rebirth of the soul. And it is. It's the continuation of the bloodline. It's the next generation. It is. Your little Fig Newton. A brand of American biscuit. Fig Newton is a term of endearment, Tori says, from Vox UK, May 1996, in her line-by-line that presciently preceded this podcast. Fig Newton is a term of endearment. It's not the Oreo cookie. It's certainly not the politically correct cookie. It's not a commercial cookie. It's the one with the jelly in the middle. Is the Fig Newton really a politically incorrect cookie? Yeah, it's not even a cookie. It's fruit and cake. And it's catchier than your little Hydrox cookie. Off your little Oreo. snack wells. <laughs> Goodbye, animal, baby. Get a The old way of thinking, the old life I lived. Yeah, everything about my prior existence and my old life and the way that I was experiencing the world. Run into the henchman that silvered and He did it right quickly, almost man. Anne Boleyn married Henry VIII in 1533 at the age of 20. Henry changed religion and divorced his previous wife, Catherine, because she couldn't provide him with a male heir. When Anne gave birth to a female, the future Queen Elizabeth, Henry had her beheaded, supposedly for adultery, in 1536. I've always been fascinated by the beheading of Anne Boleyn. You and me both, sister. So the henchman is the executor who chopped off Anne's head. And Tori says about it, I heard stories that they brought in this henchman from France, and I really aligned with him. He had Anne move her hair over before the execution, and he made her look away. He did it when she didn't know. Even though his job was a bit brutal, he had more compassion than the king. The riddle in Tallulah is things are not what they seem. Interesting. She said And then Tori even talks a little bit more about Anne in this Vox UK line by line. As I went back into the bloodline of Western women, I began to see the fragmentation. For example, with Anne's daughter Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. If you had respect and a certain power, you didn't have your sensuality and sexuality as well. There has been this division in Christian women. I went after those archetypes that have been so misunderstood. With Anne Boleyn's relationship with Henry VIII, he'd manipulate the truth. That's why he says one plus one is three. Whatever the patriarchy says goes, and you'll burn for it. You wanted to say something about that? (laughs) Are we considering that a lyric or a musical moment? it's lyric. I absolutely love what I'm going to call the percussive he that's present throughout this song. 
and it really this is like this is the kicker right here this is like the the he equivalent of it's got to be big i said when she really lands that i said in professional widow this is the best he right here before we go into that second chorus and i love this for so many reasons but i think listening to this song it's clear that tori did not record one he and loop it into the percussion of this song each he is unique so i can just picture her playing back the song in its entirety and heing all the way through it <laughs> to get all these unique unique he's it's true though just he 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 yeah i really love that and i'm going again back to my aol days i pulled that out i was very I did a lot with very little back in the day, just like Tori herself. Well, you did run a dent in Tori's ass. I did. ran it into the ground. So I pulled out the he from Tallulah and made a wave of it and then assigned it to my IM notification noise on AOL. So every single time <laughs> I got an instant message, he would he. And you know when people would send a lot of messages really quickly, it would he, like machine he, gun he, 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 he. he. <laughs> And I was never annoyed by it. I never changed it. And that was my <laughs> notification for years. I want that. He what is the it you think that she's talking about here? I think it's any experience that changes you and changes the course of your life or helps form you as a person and makes you the person who you are. Obviously, we're really seeing things through the lens of a romantic relationship here um, because of everything Tori said and everything this album was about, but I think it can be much more than that. And you make do you know, do you know what I have done? Tori says a lot of the writing on this album is about association. Jamaica, to me, represents the mysteries. If you go back to that culture, they had belief in the spirit world. Some call it voodoo. Voodoo became something different once the Christians came in. Before then, there was an understanding of other worlds we have chosen to disrespect. When I say, do you know what I have done? I haven't honored that world. This is probably why she means this whole Afro-Caribbean thing. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this album and this song are about sort of undoing the damage that was done by the patriarchy. So she's using Jamaica as sort of a symbol of a more ancient belief system where there's more of a connection to the spirit world um, without a clergy, I guess, and everything that entails. I don't know. I think oh, that's, that's interesting. Mary. Mary, Mary, who could she be talking about? Mary uh, M? Mary Magdalene. Oh, right. According to the Bible, Mary Magdalene was a prostitute who washed Jesus' feet and dried them with her hair. So Tori says in Vox UK, she says, a lot of scholars believe that she was, in her own right, a high priestess. People believe that Mary Magdalene became the high priestess when Jesus was being crowned king of the Jews. The weave of the Magdalene represented women, not virgin, not mother, but woman, which wasn't passed down. Certain fragments have been lost theologically. There are secrets in the blood that get passed down. Again, you know, the idea that we women have had to fragment ourselves in order to exist, that we can't be sexual beings and respected. And I can hear Tori on 120 Minutes with Matt Pinfield. The woman. The woman. The woman. Said what you want is in the blood of senators. Senators, the men in power, patriarchy. It's about domination, yet that's not where real power is. It's in the blood, the feminine. 
The old programming of domination is never just about go dance and let me dance and I'll let you. I got Big Bird on the fishing line. I never liked Big Bird. I'll be honest. You were more of an Oscar? Bert and Ernie in reverse order. Ernie than Bert. I always felt like an Ernie. Dumb and chubby and <laughs> playing in the bathtub. That's how I always felt. But she says Some Big Bird is... never change. <laughs> Big Bird is a play on what he represents. Whether it's a big cheese or whether it's Jesus or whether it it is Big Bird, it's just the big guy. At this point in the song, it's going after the patriarchy. Domination thing. What's a hooker? A prostitute. Or? Or a fisher of men. Thank you. In the case of Jesus and disciples. Because a fisher of men could still lead one to believe you're talking about a prostitute. Yeah. So. That's a reference to Jesus and the Magdalene, the theory that they were married. So yeah, I know about it. And that, you can't hide it. <laughs> You're not telling me anything I don't know. Right? I read Holy Blood, Holy Grail. But I do think Tori received very little, if any, credit or acknowledgement for tackling all of these themes 20 years before they were part of the larger kind of collective conversation mm -hmm. that was happening. Yeah. I mean, she's way ahead of her time. Yeah. Tori says it's really about covert operations, about secrets. It's a riddle. I, got my rape hat I think a rape hat is like, okay, that's what we're going to talk about now. That's what I'm here to talk about. That's what they're expecting from me. They want to talk about this thing. I got to put this hat on. I got to put the performer hat on. Now I got to put my rape hat on. Now I got to put my songwriter hat on. Now I got to put my virgin hat on. Now I got to put my whore hat on. Now I got to be Mary Magdalene. Now I got to be Virgin Mary. Like, it's just fragmented woman. It's the idea that everything, there's fragments, mm -hmm, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a reference, of course, to me and a gun, which we have just, I, honestly, if you listen to our last episode, I think there's a healing from the me and a gun experience that goes on in that song. David convinced me. I didn't believe it before or even think of it before, but David convinced me. And so it's interesting that she's re referencing, actually referencing me and a gun here, I think. What do you think? Yeah, and I mean, it's pretty striking to actually see the word rape in black and white here mm -hmm. and for her to sing it into a mm -hmm. song. I mean, that's very straightforward. And the idea of a rape hat, I, I totally agree with what you're saying and that to some extent, maybe too, um, because of me and a gun and rain, she's almost become like a, a poster child for yeah. sexual assault. Yeah. And it's like a, not a character, but something that she has to lapse into to have this conversation. Right. And I remember being very conflicted about this line, too, in the video. When the video came out, I just remember being very conflicted about this line. But I didn't understand it the way I do, the, the way I think I do now, uh, you know. It was a stumbling block for me in this song. I think it's kind of self-deprecating in a really great way. Like, there's an awareness that, not that Tori uses that story necessarily, but that by choosing to to share that story at all, she sort of left herself open to always being associated with it like for the rest of her career she's kind of for some people like the the sexual assault woman or the woman who sings about rape i guess right. and she says in that article she says even at a certain point if you've been dominated by the patriarchy you become a slave to it by buying into the victim side mm -hmm. so the rape hat i've got i'm wearing this thing this to me i love this line i think that it turns the previous line on its head. She controls it in a way. She's choosing to put it on. Powerful. But also, like you said earlier, self-deprecating in a way. Mm -hmm. Like it's just a tool. It's just another thing in my arsenal. It's just a lipstick. It's just a an earring. Mm -hmm. And I love the way you said this is under my control or I control 
the way that this is put out or experienced by other people. And I think that's true of the song Me and a Gun as well, because that's kind of a, a stylized, I'll say, telling of that event in Tori's life. That's not necessarily accurate to exactly what happened, but obviously that doesn't matter. So every step of the way, she's controlling the narrative of that event, I guess. Mm-hmm. You're right. And when she performs that song, she's in complete control of the entire room. She is in control of how that story gets told. She can hit a word, you know, and really grab, like scare you, grab your attention. She's in control. Mm -hmm. So it's a song about being a victim that she's completely turned on its axis. If you will. And is in complete control. That's interesting. And this is, I mean, not relevant necessarily, but I do think it's interesting that we all know Tori is not opposed to stopping mid-performance to address a heckler or talk back to someone or even kick them out. There have been maybe not many performances of Me and a Gun, but certainly a fair few, especially because she performed it at every show for a period of time where there were hecklers in the crowd or people talking. And she just used that to sort of pull in even further and either whisper or like you said, punctuate things with the flat but she never stopped and called that person out and in that way she was almost more in control mm-hmm. than if she'd done that like she mm-hmm. wasn't broken mm-hmm. by it and i don't know mm-hmm. it's very interesting well it's me. interesting that anybody would like heckle or not pay attention or not be present with her in that song and the fact that she isn't stopping yeah. for them I think this is clear. I don't know who the father is. I'm I'm figuring it out. The father meaning God. God. There's a lot of questions here. She's not sure of anything. Her whole world has been shaken up. Her whole life is different. What do you think she means by I never cared too much for the Munty? Um as a musician, as an artist, what I'm doing is authentic. But I guess that's not really true. She definitely cared for the money at some point because of, you know, the whole why can't Tori read thing. I don't think it was anything to do with money. Nothing to I think do it was with... to do with fame. I think it was to do with the acceptance. Well, I'm using those terms interchangeably. Well, not... no, I think they're very different because I don't think she was, she never cared about the money. It was about the acceptance that she was a musician. Oh, I see. On yeah. a huge, respected enough level that like that she had made it in the music industry. Mm. And that was what was popular at the time. So she, it wasn't about the money. It was about making a record and being accepted in that industry because what devastated her wasn't that the record flopped and she didn't make money. It was that the record flopped and she was a joke. That's how I see it. So she didn't care too much for the money because it's in God's hands. Whatever happens is going to yeah, happen. I can't control this part. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk about in God's hands for a second. I love that because she's not, she's in no way saying there is no God. She's saying it's in God's hands. I just don't know exactly who or what that is. And I say that because, I mean, it's obvious, I guess, but Tori is a deeply, deeply spiritual artist with um, a belief system that I think informs not only her work, but her creative process. And I think, especially in the 90s, with a song like God and selling t-shirts that said recovering Christians, I think a lot of fans, especially because we were teenagers, thought that was like super cool and edgy and rebellious. And I think a lot of people also thought that Tori was an atheist and just like rejected God and religion altogether. But I don't think that could be further from the truth. I think Tori is deeply, I won't say religious, but spiritual in her own way. And she definitely believes that there is something, something other than, the human physical experience and that 
I just think a lot of people sort of gravitated to her because at a surface level, it seemed like she's, you know, she's rejecting like the hypocrisy of religion and all that stuff, which she is. But I think they also failed to take into account that she was still like a deeply, deeply spiritual. Right. So she's not rejecting God, for example. Right. That there is a God. Right. Yeah. So there is a journey in this song because she goes from, she wobbles, she stands up after, you know, being buried with a butterbean bouquet or whatever goes on there. She stands up and she's finding her little Bambi legs, right? The music is kind of coming in slowly and she's learning how to dance, giving herself permission to dance. And then she realizes first she's got to accept herself that she's worth something and that it, this whole thing, and then finally he, she can accept relationship she can forgive herself for losing there and that's that comes at the end of the song he must be worth losing if he was worth anything so what do you think's the significance of that he's brand new now the way you look at it before it was he's not giving me what i need before it was take 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 and then now it's, I see that I was taking and I see that I had a hand in like the whole destruction of it. I love that, that it kind of holds how she's viewing him in this case and that her perspective has changed. But I also like the idea that he's moving on to a new phase of his life or a new expression of himself too. And that she's almost like wishing him well and seeing him fondly, like you're going on to your next relationship or whatever it is. And I hope you're happy, but whatever it is, you're brand new now. I love the way you said that. And I want to take that, I want to drive that into the tornado version lyrics, because here at the end, she says, he's chasing tornadoes, I'm just waiting calmly. And what you just said, you know, you're moving on to this new expression of yourself. He's gone on. He's moved on. He's doing, you know, he's out there. I don't know. There's something really, when you can wish another person well, that's wronged you or mm -hmm. that you've had a really rough experience with, you know, when you can wish them well and hope that they're happy because you did love them once. I think that that is the healing. That's you've healed. You can say you've healed. With authenticity, yeah. it takes a, a tremendous depth of integrity mm -hmm, <laughs> to be mm -hmm. able to do that. Let's talk about the background lyrics. Well, we know what they are because someone asked her, point blank, Danica. You can hear that on our tour all year episode yes. from last month. And those lyrics sung in the background are? It was, maybe I'm a happy girl. Maybe I'm a honeydew. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a bad job. And she pointed to her nose. Maybe it's what you are. I, I always thought it was maybe I'm a holy girl. Or horny girl. Horny girl. Yeah, anything but honeydew. Um, what do you think? Maybe I'm a honeydew. I'm not sure there's a lot to be mined from that. It just kind of goes back to the, the the nursery rhyme playfulness that yeah. Tori has. And it comes over the Amberlynn verse where she's getting he beheaded. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe it's a conversation between Henry and Anne. Mm -hmm. Or it's even maybe Anne Boleyn talking to herself. Maybe I'm a happy girl. Maybe I'm a honeydew like you would chop a melon. Maybe it's a bad job across the face. Maybe like the hatchet hits her across the face and whatever happens, happens. That's what <laughs> he you missed. Are. Right. Yeah. Maybe it's a bad job. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm in Chop. The, and I'm in the process of transformation maybe and becoming something else. Maybe mm. I'm all of these things. Maybe I'm You're none so of these smart. things. Hurt. <laughs> well, we figured it out. Another one in the can. Yeah. Another and just song. Just like Tori we... herself at the end here, we can give a self-satisfied. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Um, let's play a little bit of Yanta, his version of Tallulah, and let's talk about the music, shall we? Come 
I love the nakedness of her voice here. There's something really fragile about it. And a lot of reviews of this album commented on her breathy mm-hmm. vocals. Mm-hmm. And they are. And I guess stylistically, that's different than the first two albums, but that's very true. On this song, and particularly this section of the song, if you're going to describe something as breathy, it's this, right? I love that you can hear the harpsichord. I was going to say that too. Yeah. Unpluck. Yeah. Like release. Yeah, me too. Whereas on the piano, you can sort of sing and improvise playing underneath it, accentuate certain notes with your playing, and you can't do that on a harpsichord. Every sound comes across very clearly, and so you hear exactly what she's playing, and there's no, like, accented pieces, and there's no nuance or no texture. These are all just, it's like, accented everything. Yeah, it's not dynamic in the way that the piano is, right? Yeah. your favorite one yeah that's the good one you should have seen david right now he just grabbed everything from the ether and pulled it towards him i did isn't that what tori herself would do oh yeah come down through the little redhead such a treat because there are no instrumental versions of Tori Amos songs, very few. I think it's such a treat to get Yanta to actually play this on harpsichord, to sort of hear the elements in the song that you wouldn't get to hear. Agreed. I love these covers and they really do give me a new a new appreciation for all of these songs that we've been listening to for 22 years, yeah. but I still discover new things in them. So it's amazing. Because no matter how many times I've listened to Tallulah, uh, I haven't ever really listened to the harpsichord under this part. Yeah, so it's pretty buried. So. Yeah. Oh, 
boys for Pele, boys for Pele, boys for Pele, baby. The exploration in the song of just kind of this dancing, almost feverish feeling in the wake of Apocalypse, <laughs> I think is such a fun addition to the album. Even though they're a bit apart, it always vibes really well to me with In the Springtime of His Voodoo as far as exploring this kind of otherworldly and repressed aspects of femininity found in the world that can benefit a lot of strength to anyone, but specifically the women in these situations who find themselves kind of at the behest of situations from others or themselves that are kind of being self-imposed to a degree. I think that this is probably one of the funner songs on the album despite some of the things it faces in it and I think that energy is almost kind of inert in it as far as when you're making something this introspective and looking at so many demons that you kind of have to sit back at one point and laugh and dance around the fire so to say. One of my favorite lines in the song is probably just in the introduction of said you had a double tongue balancing cake and bread. I think that's such a cutting and fun little line that kind of we gets into the viewpoint of seeing power finally kind of able to view this other person and then say goodbye to a glitter girl. And I think the realization that she must be worth losing if it was worth something is probably one of the better realizations on the entire album. I think that there's just such a clarity in realizing that if you're hurt over something being lost and that means the having it was really worth it. You're listening to Tour All Year, our private podcast exclusively for Patreon supporters at the $5 level and up. In this episode, we sit down with one of our very favorite people, Peter Zimmerman, an undisputed icon of the Nouveau Tour generation. Peter has it all. Brains, beauty, talent, and the best part is, he's a sister who won't steal your mister or your ankle straps. Today, we'll find out what made him this way. 2017 Halloween. I was like hey, it's Peter, but really, I'm Santa. Ten years later, and I've let myself go, and I smack my stomach and, like, push it out like some sort of, like... You're forgetting my favorite part of the story. I'm Santa, it's ten years later, and I've let myself go, and you smack your stomach, and she goes, she sure has! She oh, sure my has. God. Which was just so delicious, because I was like, I mean, just call it an as it is. For immediate access to this and other exclusive content, head over to patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos and become a subscriber today. It's September 2018, and this is Tour All Year. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm on the line with Mark Mullins. Mark Mullins, he's a trombone player and a horn arranger from New Orleans. He, of course, arranged the horns for this track, Tallulah. Hi, Mark. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. Tell me everything about you as a trombonist. I play trombone in middle school band and high school band and the marching band. So I'm very, I love the trombone and I love talking to a fellow trombonist. Tell me what led you to music and how you got involved with horns. Super cool. Um, well, my older brothers, I got two older brothers and they used to play. And uh, when I was a little kid, they were they were in the band, you know, and I thought it was really cool that they were playing instruments in the band. They'd come home and practice, you know, I couldn't do that. And I, I, I said, okay, I want to do that. So when it was time, I was going to play saxophone. All right, fourth grade, I'm ready, you know. And I go to my orthodontist and he's like, no, 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 you can't. You're not going to be able to play saxophone. It's going gonna, it's gonna to mess up your overbite. You know, I'm like, oh, come on. All right. Well, uh, I said, Doug, my, Eric, what else do I play? My brother's. 
I said, well, play trombone. No, nobody plays trombone. They always need trombone players in the band, and you'll be first chair right away because you'll probably be the only one. And they were they were exactly right. <laughs> there was nobody else playing the trombone, and so I did it, and I kept doing it, and I started listening to a lot of New Orleans music, which is where I live and where I'm from. I, I've done it my whole life. I'm I'm 50 years old now, and uh, I, I've I've been really lucky to be able to play music for a living. I played with Harry Connick Jr. and his big band, and currently I have a band called Bonorama here based out of New Orleans, which is fronted by, by three trombones. So wow. it's all about the trombone these days. Um, Mark has played with incredible musicians who you know, Cheryl Crow, Ani DeFranco. Talk to us where you are in your career in, in 1995 before you worked with Tori. I know, man. You, I had to actually kind of look back on this because it's been a few minutes since this all happened. This was, I want to say, yeah, it was 1995. Uh, I was playing with George Porter Jr. when I was in New Orleans, but at the same time, I was also had been on the on the road with uh, Harry Connick Jr.'s big band for about five years at that point. When I'd be home, man, I wanted to be, you know, doing some New Orleans stuff too, and so. Was lucky enough to be in George's running partners. And George Porter, if anyone is not sure who George, George Porter Jr. is, he's the bass player. Oh, everyone on our show knows George Porter Jr., that's for sure. Good. Okay, good. And you should. The meters, you know, just helped redefine and update New Orleans music into what, as we know it, what it is as we know it today. And he's just a great guy. I've learned so much from George. George was playing with Tori um, at about that time. Tori decided she wanted to come to Louisiana and, and do some tracks uh, in New Orleans. And so Tori's like, well, if you need some horns, you should call Mark Mullins. And because I had done all the horns for walked well, down a lot. I did a lot of the horns for George, but George's horn section was more of a collective effort, but I love doing arranging. I love doing horn arranging. And, uh, and so, you know, she, we, we talked before we went into the studio, um, I might be getting ahead of myself here, but um, she she had we had she had some ideas on on songs, and we kind of took it from there, and, and really worked out a lot of things in the studio as well. But but at that time, at ninety five nineteen ninety five, I was in my twenties, and uh, again spending a lot of time on the road with Harry Connick Jr. But when I was at home playing with George Pointer at that time, so um, as a horn arranger and and. and specifically with this project how did you get the music ahead of time did, were you just invited to the studio and then you heard it there how did the what was the process like that's a great question and it's always different and in this particular case it was a little of both um i, I she had definitely wanted something on or well, at least she only told me about uh muhammad my friend she definitely wanted some some sort of horns involved on that it's been a long time, and it's been over 20 years, so I can't quite remember what ideas she might have had on that, but I know I had I had multiple things to present to her on that to try, you know, and also see how it went in the studio to, to see what needs to be changed, try some stuff, try some different things, because that's all part of the process. But we did talk before, uh, and, and, she, and, and I, remember, I remember she did, we did have a conversation going in and talked kind of specifically about that one song. But the second song, Tallulah, was not really arranged ahead of time. Mm -hmm. uh, she played it. She's like, come in here. I want you to listen to this. And we sat down on the sofa in the American sector in New Orleans. And I'm like, kind of, you know, 
I'd been playing with some people that had names, but I don't know. I was just a little bit starstruck. I'm just a big fan as well of Torres, you know, I was like, just have so much respect for it. And I'm, I was a lot younger than I am now, <laughs> but, uh, man, she, she was so super cool. Her whole vibe and her whole uh, approach to how this session could go. It's just one little small, little minuscule flick of the whole world of this boys for Pele record she's doing, but you know, she's given it the utmost attention. Like it was the most important thing in the world. And that just, that kind of blew me away because I, I was relatively aware of the other components that go into what makes a big record like this, you know? And I was like, I, I knew that our stuff was very, very small role, but she had some, she had some ideas and she didn't really want anything prepared on this particular song in advance. She wanted to try some things in the studio, which is always fun. Uh, you never know where that's going to go. And so she, she sat down and she had this line, in her mind, uh, in her head, already thought out. Just a, just a basic line that, that you'll hear in, in Tulua. And she sang this line, you know. I think I'm singing it in the wrong key, but uh, she, she, I'm like, I'm furiously like writing it down, you know, because I have probably, we got five guys or so in the studio. And you get, everyone on the same page it's just it's it's one way to is to call it out another way if you're going to break out voicings and harmonize stuff like if you were sitting at the piano every guy is a finger right on right. um, you know on, uh, as you're voicing out stuff so it can get it can usually be a little bit easier just to sort of jot it out real quick based on what she's looking for and come up with voicings that fit that work also cool to just try some stuff off the cuff, but I sketched out some stuff really quick that she was uh, singing, and she had some really cool, specific ideas on uh, harmonically on what it should do, when it should break into harmonies, what kind of harmonies it could break off into. So my job became relatively easy, you know. <laughs> as much as I'd like to take major credit for it, I really just sort of spelled out her idea and kind of use the guys that we had there and split out the stuff in, into voicings that would work. And it really came together pretty quickly from what I remember. And again, it's just such a small, it only happens one time in the song, I believe, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And, but it's and, so uh, effective. It is beautiful. And it, it, the song like just breaks down at that point. And all of a sudden you're like in a different, room maybe you know you're in like in a different place mm -hmm. and it's this this whole she wanted this whole like almost angelic sort of i don't know if that's what she was thinking but she she wanted some sort of a change you know to happen right there sonically with that song and this was a way to to help achieve that and it was really cool to be a part of that process what blew me away also was how hands-on she was well, about everything that I could see that whole day was, was like really floored me. I was like, she's very involved with every component mm -hmm. of almost everything that went on. And, and, and why shouldn't she be? But uh, it was cool. It was cool that she would spend so much time on a personal level with all the guys, uh, again, for such for the role of what it was in, in the song, which, again, is very small, but very important to her. Right. So at this point in her career, too, she's, you know, this... Uh, we're so excited to be in the Boys for Bailey season because this is, we all feel, her masterpiece. And this is the first time she produced for herself 
Um, this record is so textured. On the record, there's over 70 musicians, but sometimes, like you said, you come in just for a line, just for a sonic change um, to provide just that, di- that, that change in the room or that difference. Um, and I love that you use the word angelic, too, because I do feel that when, when the horns come in. Um, so take it back a little bit. You said you, you actually tracked horns for Muhammad, my friend? We did. Um, so a lot of what I did originally, like as far as the arrangement goes, she decided, you know, it's good. But I think I want to strip it down and bring it into something smaller to fit into the thing. Because originally we talked about the full section being on that song. And I think it ended up just being uh, Clarence Johnson just yeah. playing on the uh, on the sax. on the little soprano, which is a lot lighter of a sound texture-wise mm-hmm. than what we had originally kind of t- talked about and shot for. And so there's some alternate stuff somewhere on the, <laughs> the cutting room floor, as there is throughout the whole album, I'm sure, like things that you you know you would try that you know. It's cool, but it, let's try to put this in a different place. Yeah, you know, yeah. one of those things, and it's it's pretty neat to see that process. And it's like a selfless thing. It's because it's become it becomes all about what's best for the song, as per the person that's creating it and driving the whole thing. And so, like, how do we get there? And let's get there together. I don't care. That's why I wrote thirty four different things so we could throw thirty three <laughs> of them away, right. or whatever you know, or swallow them away and come up with something even better. Because we're all, you're all there for to try to contribute to uh, to to the song. And when you're coming into a studio as a studio musician, um, and you know the idea that time is money, you know, and you, you're prepared as 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 prepared as you can be, I guess, when you don't know what's going to happen, you come in. What's the in this particular instance? What's the vibe like in the room? Was there a pressure to get anything done, or or was it a, a little more free? It was a lot more free. Uh, and you always think that there can be pressure, and I'm guilty of it when it's my session. <laughs> <laughs> right. That I, I, I sometimes exhibit too much pressure, and that's the wrong thing. I mean, it's like you got to get it done. I mean, you can't just be messing around all day in there, but you want the vibe to be right. You want the vibe to be light, fun. I just remember it was just like that. It was like light, fun vibe, almost playful. Uh, uh, George was there, George Porter Jr., okay. um, he was there, and so he was kind of keeping it light as well. And she, 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 but it all really starts when she walks in the room. She's, she's just such, she has just a pleasant, pleasant vibe, you know. Like yeah. can't even describe it. She's just very light, very warm, accepting, you know. And and that just is very contagious okay. <laughs> through everybody that's there, you know. And that's the right thing. It's yeah. really the right thing, and it's it's everything. Um, the vibe. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Mullins. That's Mark with a K. And follow his band Bonorama on BonoramaBrass.com or on Facebook at Bonorama Music. Mark's on tour right now, and he will be playing the Hollywood Bowl supporting Harry Connick Jr. on September 7th, 8th, and 9th. So for everybody here in L.A., make sure you go out at least for one of those nights to see Mark. Uh, Mark, really appreciate your time. You got it. Thank you so much. And uh, y'all take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Of course, that was just a small part of a longer interview. You can listen to the rest on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash songs of But for now, here's some Bonorama.
If it keeps on raining, that love is gonna break. And when the love breaks, you'll have no place to stay. talented musicians <laughs> i do what's funny about that i have a soft spot for hideously untalented musicians <laughs> let's bring on we're gonna here in a second we're gonna talk to mark core who directed the Tallulah video but we have a couple things we want to say about it first yes let's play a little bit of tori talking about the video so i sort of um trusted the director and let him just bring in these very abstract elements do I know what this video is about? Absolutely not. I have no idea. But I don't I don't really mind that. He had something going on in his head and I it made sense to me while he was telling me. Here's something from the Tory Stories booklet, her take on the videos, and she says Boy in the Plastic Bubble has always been a cornerstone for me. And I've this... always been fascinated by the boy <laughs> in the plastic bubble. <laughs> always been the cornerstone for me and Miss Karen. If we were freezing, imagine the harpsichord. Battersea Power Station in February. Yick. That's where they filmed the video. Power, Battersea Power Station. Yick. Tallulah, the song, has two major themes, power and value. Those in power can demand that we see and agree with them by threatening us with a loss of some kind. Here in Tallulah, my character is separated from her primal voice, her bloodline, which is represented by the harpsichord. If you don't agree or follow those in power, I do believe there will be a rejoicing by your inner soul, by your own inner child. Loss is a scary thing, but what I found to be more scary would be to feel nothing after a loss. Oh, that's a good point. Mm. Well stated and differently stated and very clear. And that goes back to this girl feels man as yeah. opposed to hurt. Oh, the lyrics from hurt. interesting. I get it now. Mm-hmm. Just to see if I could feel, but she does feel. Mm-hmm. Okay. She also says, similar to that sentiment, I would rather have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. This video has one of your favorite moments in it, right? You love when Tori's hands come bursting through the plastic to meet those keys. Don't I, you love that? Every one of us loves that. I think... You don't you don't agree? No, I do. It's a rejoicing moment. Mm-hmm. It's a joyful reconnecting and rejoicing of her getting her soul. Mm-hmm. And she's playing with like weird condom fingers. <laughs> what? Plastic gloves. From Tori Amos All These Years, the authorized biography. The second video from Boys for Pele, Tallulah, is an abrupt departure from the hypnotic nature of the sneeze video, but retains the feeling of an alternate reality. Shot in a deserted power plant, it was directed by Mark Kaur, known for his work with the likes of Primus, Green Day, and Alanis Morissette. 
Featuring a blowtorch-wielding Tori, along with a variety of other characters, including tightrope walkers and laboratory assistants, the video's theme, according to Tori, is the process of dehumanization. Shall we talk to Mark? Let's do it. Sorry, I already did it. Damn it. I know. Sometimes I have to do these on my own because... Of my failing health? Well, that and schedule. Oh. So I recorded this a little earlier. Here's my conversation with Mark Kaur about the Tallulah video. And just so you know, I did it first thing this morning when I woke up and I'm in morning voice. On the line, we have the incredible Mark Kaur. Mark is a music video director and co-founder of Bob Industries. He has directed iconic videos for artists such as Green Day, No Doubt, Alanis Morissette, videos you surely know, and of course, Tallulah by Tori Amos. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Efren. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Oh, we're so excited to have you. How did you get started directing music videos? I, as a, as a, as a kid, really loved watching movie musicals like uh, MGM, you know, Freddie Sarah, Gene Kelly, and, and, you know, and old movies. And I just loved musical stuff. I mean, the color, the way they were the shot, the dances. I just really loved that classic, amazing cinema. And then, you know, through that interest and a lot of other interests that I had, you know, science and optics and photography and kind of by hook or by crook, I ended up directing, you know, being a music video director. Incredible. What was your, what would you say was the break that you had that pushed you over into music video directing? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because I would like to look, I mean, yes, there was a definite um, acceleration at a certain point, but I lived in San Francisco and I started working at a, at a company called Colossal Pictures and they did um, effects for, you know, Coppola, one from the heart and so on and so forth. I started directing music videos, but they were all local and I did about 11 of them, mm. I think. And then, um, and I was doing um, uh, music videos for a band called Primus and we we're doing these really interesting and unusual videos at the time. And then the the Green Day guys, you know, Billy and 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 you know and, and, and Trey and Mike, they wanted the guy who was doing the Primus videos. And you know, and and at the time, they were young guys. I mean, Billy was eighteen, and um, and so you know, I I did their first video for a song called Longview, and that video just exploded. And and as happens in Hollywood, if you're ready, things can go really fast. And so within a year and a half after that video was done, I was doing very well. I was, you know, one of those people who was, you know, making videos for um, the top 40 bands at the time. And it was really a great time that I'm very grateful I had. Coming off Hand in My Pocket, you move on to direct Tallulah by Tori Amos, which is her second single from Boys for Pele. How did, how did you meet Tori? How did that come around? Well, you know, at that point, I had done... Just a Girl for No Doubt, and I did um, uh, The Hand of Pocket. And I was trying to do, at the time I was making an effort to do videos for women. And I requested if, you know, they could go after, see if Tori Amos had any music. And she did. So I got uh, Tallulah. So you approached Atlantic? You approached them? Yeah, I believe so. It wasn't me personally. Luckily, you know, at the time, the way that the music video industry was structured was that, you know, we had production companies with reps. Right. And so, you know, my rep was a woman named Danielle Kaganen, who is really awesome. And she, um, 
and yeah, she approached Atlantic, and I'm forgetting who was at Atlantic, who the video commissioner was there at the time. But you know, I got music and uh, wrote an idea for it. When you received the music for Tallulah, was it the original version or was it the tornado mix already? The mix in the video is what I got. So uh, what, whatever that is, um, that's what I. That is the tornado vision. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so listening to this incredible music, wanting to work with complex, powerful women, mm-hmm. how did you parse through this song to come up with an idea? And what was that process like for you? Okay, well, well, here's where the story will it unfolds. Okay, <laughs> and, it's, and it's beauty. Um, it's an odd song. Right? right, it has a right. great energy to it, but you listen to it, and 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 you know, and really, w- w- the way that I approach writing music for any music videos is, is that first I listen to them and just see how they make me feel, and I write down copious notes of what images come to mind, and then I start looking through books as I'm listening to music and pictures, and I um and and tear sheets and so forth. And I, and, and I let them nudge me in different directions and different things come to mind. And, you know, it was a long time ago that I did, of course, the process for Tallulah. So I can't remember what was on that, what, was, what, what I came up with. I can't even remember the treatment. But I do know this, okay, is that, oh, and, and I remember I was like, I don't know what this song means. This is just wild. It's all over the place, you know. <laughs> But it's but it, but but obviously obviously it is about female it's the female energy in with incredible power okay because you know there's you know my Ray Pat on and there's um, you know Anne Bolin and you know and and and, and so forth and, and you know I'm, so I you know look and, and then I get into the words and I kind of look at who's who and so forth I'm like oh my gosh I oh. You know, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> you know, but I did, you know, obviously I wrote up treatment for it and she liked it. And, but what I ended up uh, coming upon was I had just read, or my brother maybe suggested, I'm not sure. I, I, I know my brother suggested it, but he said, hey, you should read this story, short story by uh, Ray Bradbury called The Powerhouse. And I read it and I really liked it, you know, and it was and 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 it was about this couple and their own horses and they're in the desert and the the woman is having this really hard time because her mother has just died. And and she's 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 grieving heavily and they're on these horses and a big big storm is coming, you know, a terrible lightning storm is coming in the distance and it's evening. And they they see a, a powerhouse, you know, a, 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 a power station in the desert. And they go to it, and it's like buzzing, you know. And the doors open. They're like, hello, you know, and there's like no one in there. And they, they go to sleep. You know, they, go, they lay down in this powerhouse to sleep. And the rain, the storm comes super heavy. And uh, it's like lashing gets the windows and everything. And, and just all around, I mean, all the metal, the, the glass um, uh, insulators and the pipes, the high-frequency, um, you know, high-voltage electricity pipes are above. And there's like, you know, kind of sparks around it. But the whole thing is just buzzing. And as she's falling asleep in this state of sleep and awake, she goes almost like into the wires. She goes and she sort of broadcasts throughout all of the, uh, you know, through the whole electrical system. Um, that this thing um, uh, distributes to 
And and she basically has, you know, Satori, this Satori moment where she's everywhere at once. And she's kind of all people at once. And I really like that. Like, it really resonated with me. I was like, oh, my God, this is so beautiful, you know. And so I wrote up some version of that to Tori that it was going to happen in a powerhouse, you know, in a, in a energy generating facility. Um, and she was like, great. So anyway, so here's the deal. She was in Britain. And it's like, okay, well, we need to come over. And I, need, I needed to shoot in Britain. So I went over there. You know, I said, okay, you know, I need someone to kind of check out and see if there are any possibilities of places, places where I can shoot. Because I wanted sort of a Victorian um, a powerhouse, mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, I don't want to shoot in Battersea because, you know, Pink Floyd shot there and everything else. I'd love to find a place that really has like arches and, and um, brick that's glazed and so forth. And have it be really beautiful, you know, but old tech and but electricity. And um, and they're like, okay. And they looked around. They're like, we have three places for you to look at. And one of them we think is really good. It's um it's on the Thames. And uh, it um, it recently was closed down. It's a huge structure. It's, it was amazing inside. And I'm like, great. So I so I get on an airplane. I'm like, okay, Tori, we're going to make this thing. You know, I get on the airplane, I, I, I'm going over, and I land. And when I land, I find out that there have been these terrorist bombings going off when I was in the air. Two or three bombs went off in London. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I, I'm like, well, you know, that happens here, right? And then the producer says, yes, but. <laughs> but now the National Security Service won't let you into those other two power stations that they're on, we are, the country's like on a lockdown and you can't get into those other two power stations. Really cool. But at least we have the ones on the, on the Thames that mm-hmm. I told you about. Mm-hmm. Right. Good. Well, let's go see that. And, and he's like, and we can look at Battersea power station as well. But he says, but unfortunately all of the power part in the middle has been torn out because they're going to make it to condominiums, minimums. But you can see the operating room that's still intact where they shot Monty Python. And like, okay, well, why not? You know, like, I love stuff, and, and it's a part of history, so I'll go check it out. So I get up the next day, and Jonathan, the producer, says, oh, I'm sorry, Mark, but the place in the Thames, the Tate Gallery, is going to take it over, and so you can't shoot in there. And I'm like, oh, damn. <laughs> I'm like, well, what can you show me? And he said, well, I can show you Battersea Power Station. I'm like, oh. So it was like everything's off the table, right? Mm-hmm. Except for Battersea. Mm-hmm. So we go to Battersea Power Station, and it's a mess. The middle's all ripped out. It looks fantastic because all the, the four smokestacks are still there. And the, the, the machine, the, the control room, the thousands of dials with copper and, and you know, glass. And, and, you know, it just looks just like old-fashioned tech. You know, it's where they shot the... There's a shot from the meaning of life in there with like a guy with these long arms, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm like, I, yeah, I, there's, I don't see any place for me to shoot here, you know, like in that, that, that I was looking for, which was power station looking place. Right, right. Okay. The bigness, I want giant dynamos and I want giant glass insulators and I want tubes and, you know, I want, <laughs> yeah. I want all that stuff. I want that stuff that says power station. Okay. And then Jonathan says, but I have another place for you to check out. And I'm like, okay. And he says, it's about by the opening of the River Thames. 
So we're, I'm driven out there, and I'm like, well, where are we going? And he's like, we're going to a sewage treatment plant. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, really? And he's like, yeah, but it's been out there forever. Suppose it looks amazing, right? So we get out there, and yeah, it looked amazing. I mean, it was crazy. It was London's sewage treatment plant. <laughs> and, and I'm looking around, and he goes, Mark, what do you think? Like, here's a shot. Here's a shot. Those look like generators, even though they're pumps. Those look like dynamos, you know, even though they're things that open massive valves that allow sewage to flow. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like... I'm like, you know, I know, I get it, I get it, I see it, it's here, you're right, but you know what, I can't do it, I'm telling you, I cannot shoot here, because here's the thing, not only does it smell, but if the news gets out, <laughs> single, if even if Tori were to agree to this, if any single crew person said, yeah, well, we shot in the sewage treatment plant out there, it would be terrible for Tori, right, right. you know, like horrible we cannot do this so at that point i'm just like my list has nothing on it. like i do not have a location and i have to meet with tori and and you know and, and tori you know she's tough okay mm -hmm. she she wants the best she has very high expectation and i also have high expectation of myself you know and so um, I was like in a really, I was, uh, you know, in that state where I'm like, oh, really stressing out. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've got to call her and let her know what the problem is here, you know. So I gave her a call. You know, and this is like, and keep in mind, this isn't just me calling her. This is like Mark, the, for the producers, you've got to call Tori. And my, my production company, you've got to call Tori and figure this thing out, Okay. And because you can't do your idea, right? Like we cannot do the treatment anymore, okay? Or agreed upon idea. And so I call Tori and I, uh, I get her on the phone. I say, Tori, you know, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really having a problem here. <laughs> and this is what Tori says. Like, like, all, like all of kind of any sort of mask of Tori playing Tori kind of comes off at this point. And she says, oh, my God, Mark, I'm, I'm having a terrible time, too. I don't know if I can take it. And I say, really, Tori? You know, I'm so sorry. Tell me what's going on. And she says, this new album has harpsichord in it, okay? It's like harpsichord all over the place, right? And, and so I'm getting ready for my tour, and, and, we're, and we put the harpsichord, like, into the hall, and it goes out of tune. We, they, my guy comes in, tunes it. And it sounds good. And then, and then they turn the heat on, and it goes out of tune. And then the guy tunes it, and then they turn the heat off, and the, and the audience comes in, and then it goes out of tune. And I'm just beside myself. I can't keep this damn thing in tune, you know, to play live. Right. Okay. And, um, and I said, oh, and, you know, and I had said before this, I'm having a trouble because I, I can't find a location because the bomb's going off, right? So she's aware of that. Right. But, but uh, you know, and she's telling me, you know, it goes out of tune. And I'm like, Tori, I have an idea for you, okay? It may sound kind of funny, but I think it'd be great for your harpsichord. And she, she, she's like, well, what, what, what is it? And I say, okay, you make a plexiglass box that's on stage and has, like, lights inside and has a door on the front. 
and then like audience comes in and then the lights come up like on the on the harps court inside <laughs> the box right and then you come out you know and then you go into the box and you play the harpsichord and just be awesome <laughs> and, it, and it's of course a controlled uh, environment in there so the temperature is the same the humidity everything stays the same so it stays in tune and she goes oh my god mark oh my god oh my god that's it and but i could hear there was a tone in the that's it that was not the right tone and i said what do you mean <laughs> and she said that's what we're going to do for our video <laughs> uh, that's awesome and i'm like okay and i know better you know i knew better and i know better that when you know you get that kind of information there it is there you use it yeah yeah so i'm like okay and she and i'm like what do you mean and she said well it's kind of like in the box like that's her voice she mm -hmm. said that's mm -hmm. her voice and you know she's and and i think you know she's referring to the universal her mm -hmm. you know that's at that point mm -hmm. she can't get to it she can't get to her voice but eventually she's able to get to it but not quite get to it okay and i'm like oh and she's able to play it she's not able to quite get to it but she's able to play it okay i'm like okay yeah okay that's great i'll work on that <laughs> <laughs> okay so then I worked on it and, and basically, um, you know, uh, I, you know, wrote up a plan and, you know, pitched it to her and she said, great. And I wrote up a shot list for it and, uh, and then went to make the video, um, which was a whole other story. <laughs> which we're going to get into. Tori has described the, at least the thoughts behind this video. She has said, those in power can demand that we see and agree with them by threatening us with a loss of some kind. In Tallulah, my character is separated from her primal voice, her bloodline, which is obviously represented by the harpsichord. That would have been an amazing idea to have on stage, by the way. That would have been very, very cool. <laughs> um, so getting back to that idea, what was the day of, what was the day of the shoot like? How did that play out? We ended up at Battersea because uh, I just wanted a, like a cool sort of warehousey place. And then somehow that ended up to be that we are back at Battersea, shooting at Battersea Power Station mm -hmm. in one of their cool rooms. So then we show up at Battersea Power Station there, but it's the winter. And it was freezing that afternoon when we showed up because we, we had to shoot through the night. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I, I showed up prepared. I had my shot list, you know, folded in three parts in my back pocket, stapled, ready to go. You know, my battle plan, the planning part of my brain, ready. And it was so cold that I'm trying to remember the, the DP's name, but um, it was so cold that he was wearing a down, like, spacesuit. Okay. <laughs> like, it was a onesie, right? Like a down onesie. And the hood was up so like he's looking through a hole okay and i was like oh my god it's so freaking cold and the day starts out it, you know all shoots start a little behind right 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 well this one it was so cold that everyone it was like they're walking in sand and i was like oh my god this is terrible you know and there was nothing i could do about it and I could just see the clock, you know, the clock is just, you know, like it's got a drill behind it and it's spinning at this unbelievable speed, you know, to the end of the day when we run out of money. 
And it was one of those shoots where I just had to get my shot list and just drop it over my shoulder onto the ground because <sighs> I, 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 there was no looking at the shot list. It was just like, okay, put that prop and that stuff over there against that wall, light it, let's shoot it. Shoot it full, close up, you know. <laughs> right. You know, and that's, okay, we're going to cover this a little bit. Okay, and, um, uh, you know, okay, you know, there, that's where the two boxes are going to be. Put them there. Get Tori, take your down. You know, she had like a down, almost like a bathrobe kind of thing, but it's like made of down, you know, like nylon. And so, like, okay, Tori, get that thing off. Get over there. Okay, let's shoot. Everyone, you know, <laughs> and it was total, like, command on the losing battlefront situation. You know, and I'm just like doing my best to push that string, and um, and I just had that feeling on that shoot, like my where because I was getting so little of what I wanted to shoot. I was getting so little of what was on my shot list that I wasn't even looking at it anymore. I was just hitting key points, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, you know I just felt like my skin was on fire, you know, like that, uh, you know, like napalm. <laughs> and and we had so little footage, it was remarkable. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We saw little footage. It was crazy. And I had to edit and we went to the color correction and, 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 and the color correct, the guy who color corrected, he was a genius. He was like Dave Hussey in LA, but, but, but he was, I can't remember this guy's name in Britain, but he was so good with color and it, oh, I was so happy, so grateful. And then, and then we went to the edit and the editor, he was so good and he was so much like, a team player on my side like supported me and um and he managed to put together this edit that worked I, I joke like it was like you know we had four minutes of footage and he and and the video was three minutes and 56 yeah and and three minutes and and 56 seconds <laughs> and he was able yeah and he was able to cut together something you know so anyway there you go that's it Mark, you've been so generous with your time today. Thank you so much for talking to us. You can find Mark online at markcore.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at coremark, that's K-O-H-R-M-A-R-K. Of course, we'll link to it all in our show notes. Thank you, Mark. It's been such a pleasure. It's really been an honor to be on your show, and you're a great host. Oh. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. You can listen to the rest of that interview on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos. Here is Amazing Blue from University of Michigan performing Tallulah. <laughs> Thank you.
We've made it to the live section. <laughs> Toriumus has performed Tallulah a total of 215 times throughout her career. Isn't that incredible? It is. I have my wits about me today, so I'm not going to let you do the thing where you dangle the first live performance in front of me and then tell me that we don't have the recording. I'm well, ready for you. I wouldn't I do that. You. I wouldn't do that this time because we do have the recording. You want to hear it? Yes. Well, I'm sorry we don't have it. <laughs> sorry, David. I guess whoever recorded that show didn't consider the first performance of Tallulah a highlight. I guess, well, we, yeah, because we have selected songs from that performance. March 16th in Amsterdam. So do you want to hear that first recording we actually do have? I'm hesitant to say yes, but sure. <laughs> it's the sixth time she played Tallulah. Isn't that oh. insane? Mm-hmm. The first five times aren't recorded. I know. Well, they might be. They are lost to time. Lost perhaps. to time. But the sixth time was on March 24th in Frankfurt, Germany. He's Basically, this song didn't evolve much throughout the 96 tour because she was playing to the backing track. Mm -hmm. And there was Steve Caton on stage with her as well. But it was always played second to last, right before Me and a Gun. Not always. Basically, usually played second to last Mm -hmm. before Me and a Gun. Yeah. Did she play it at your first show? Yeah. So you you knew that she was doing it with the backing track before you went? No. Oh, you didn't? No, I didn't. Oh, so what did you think about that? No, maybe I did. Having never seen Tori in the first two tours, I think if I'd seen the Under the Pink tour or the one Why Can't Tori Reach show, I would be prepared for the backing track. But I don't think I was prepared. Or if you'd seen an unrepentant Geraldine show. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you know, I've never been a fan of the backing track. I don't think she needs it. Um, This is an interesting case, though, because it is, I think, one of the only times she's done a backing track, right? Where there's been another performer on stage with her, where they're both playing to tape. Yeah. It didn't bother me so much. It didn't give the song a chance to evolve. And I would have much rather heard the Glitter Girl version, but what are you going to do? I remember really enjoying it at the time um, because those shows were so heavy. I thought it really was kind of a nice break from that and was a breath of fresh air. And because obviously she was not playing with the band, there was really no other way that she could have performed that song and, you know, have it resemble anything close to being on the album. So, yeah. I mean, probably I enjoyed it at the time, too. I. I can't imagine she would have done anything at that first show that made me not enjoy it. And I probably was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. She had that full sound and the lights. Like, I probably was like that. But that's just with the, you know, luxury of time Uh looking back. 
Like, I don't <laughs> think she needs the backing track. Now, if you saw it, you'd just be sitting there with your arms crossed. Well, now if I saw it, I'd be like, thank God, she's playing the harpsichord. Uh, right? Yeah. Basically. Here's an interesting Tallulah where it all breaks down. You want to talk about this? I think this happened a couple times on this tour where she would go to sort of trigger the backing track and it just wouldn't start for whatever reason or it would cut out kind of midway through the song and she'd have to vamp a little bit. So I think it's so interesting and something I never considered before that she activates the backing track with her pe- with a pedal. Right, yeah. yeah. With her foot on a uh-huh. pedal. She is in control of it, which I, that's much... Uh, probably there's a lot more security there for a performer not to have to rely on Mark and Marcel. Right. You thought they were in the back like with their finger hovering over a button waiting well, yeah. to trigger it at the right moment. Does, isn't that how it works in normal people shows? I don't know. I mean, now when she plays the tape, she doesn't activate it. They activate it. That's true. That's so, funny, actually. Yeah. yeah. That's she how it, gives the signal like she hits herself upside the yeah. head or whatever bum, she bum, does bum. when she wants it to start. Right. Um, but I think it's really interesting that in this tour, she activated it with a pedal. She wasn't ready to give that control up yet. Yeah. Yeah. If she really wanted to draw out that Chasing Tornadoes intro oh, yeah, exactly. as long as she wanted, she yeah. was like, I'll just, ta- I'll just tap it when I'm ready. Yeah. Done <laughs> and done. So here, this is from May 2nd, 1996 in Philadelphia. And we're going to play two parts of it because it messes up at the beginning and messes up at the end. Oh, I love it. Okay, Me here too. we go. video bootleg video so when we get around to putting up the video versions of these episodes on our youtube page then you'll see that or you could just probably search it but we're gonna put it all together one day i still can't believe that people managed to get video bootlegs back then with the technology that was (laughs) available you see that thing in the closet that's my Tory box filled with video bootlegs really and my roommate has a vcr to dvd player and that's on my list of things to digitize but i'm much more interested right now in digitizing i guess i should because some of those are 96 shows yeah i'm much more interested right now in digitizing any cassette bootlegs that anyone has and i can do it if anybody has any cassette bootlegs that aren't on our on my deck i have every bootleg on my drive that i know of and i'm adding to it slowly when we find new ones Uh, And I'm always ready and willing to digitize old tapes for anyone out there that has old tapes. 
Just mail them to me. I'll do it and send them back. I have a couple of video bootlegs in a box somewhere from Do Drop In. We should do that. I don't think that are. I don't think they ever ended up on YouTube. Oh my God, <laughs> David, let's go to your house. Okay. <laughs> Want to go into plugged? I'm already plugged. I'm already ahead of you. Okay. So Tori performed Tallulah 125 times on the Do Drop In tour and 21 times on the Plug tour. Um, she did it on the piano with yeah. the band. I have a question for you. Why do you think Unplugged, when she had obviously a, a, you know, a keyboard that she could have programmed with any sample, do you think she did harpsichord songs on piano? Do you think it was because, I'm going to answer for you, because she was more of a purist at that point and wouldn't have wanted like a digital harpsichord sound as opposed to no, a real harpsichord? I think if you look at um, Past the Mission, she's got an oboe. She pumps in an oboe. She doesn't care. But she, Tori is not an oboe player. So I feel like as someone who plays keyboard instruments, that would have felt more of like a betrayal to her, to like the to the real instrument that she personified, especially at that point. I don't know. Just the way her mind works, I could see that okay, being the maybe. reason. Like, I'm not going to play a fake harpsichord. Because I can already play the real one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You're right, maybe. I love, this is, she would add the background vocals. That's why I thought she was saying, maybe I'm a horny girl. Mm -hmm. But it's a honeydew. She might have been. I mean, you never know. Here's August 18th in Atlanta. She also started adding this really cool intro, uh, Someone's Calling, Supper's Chillin'. Here's a great performance in Akron, Ohio on November 28th. So you want to move on to Strange Little Tour? Uh-huh. Strange. So strange. So she did this solo on the Whirly. Um, this is from September 30th. This is the tour debut of Talula. Don't lose you. Don't lose you. To lose. 
How many times did she play it on this tour? She played it nine times. Not a lot. Not a lot. I don't know that I ever saw it. Did you? I did, actually. And here it is. Austin on November 2nd, 2001. Pretty, you know, radical reinvention, though. Yeah. To go from a harpsichord track with a band to a solo on the Wurlitzer. Yeah. Well, I love the sound of the Wurlitzer. I really do. Like, I, I would love for her to keep. That's why I really like the 0203 tour because mm. she was really she brought the Wurlitzer in with the band. It was mm-hmm. like the best of both worlds, minus Steve Caton, sadly, mm. which that would have been amazing. You mentioned it was a radical reinvention, and I think more than any other song, very clearly, this uh, this performance, this incarnation is about Tosh on this tour being a new mother. And it goes back to that quote that um, a child is the rebirth of the soul. Oh, Tori. <laughs> um, let's move on to Scarlet's Walk. 0203, Scarlet's Walk, she did it 36 times. And this time she did it on the Fender Roads and the Wurlitzer. Got that double decker. You want to play some? Can I pick? Yeah. What do you want to play? Well, I would just die for January 28th in Milan. What you Of pianos. 
She did it three times in 03 on the Lotta Pianos tour. Again, still on the Fender Rhodes and Wurlitzer, which was an extension of the Scarlet's Walk tour. We all know it. I'm still offended by the fact Don't start that with you me. consider that a separate tour. It was a separate tour. Yeah. Lotta Pianos. She had Ben Folds. She didn't have him on. Oh, God. Don't start. Three times. Do you want to move on to the Beekeeper tour? Mm-hmm. Sorry, we can't. She didn't do it. <laughs> That's my new joke. So we have to move on to the Doll Posse tour. Hit it, dolls. She did it twice only in 2007, and she did it on the electric roads and the piano, and it was with the band. As Tori, right? Yeah, as Tori. Who would have this song? Maybe Santa. No, oh, maybe. If not Clyde. You're right. It's about a new girl, like, waking up to her new self. Yep. Oh, yeah. Santa would come out. Poor Margarita. I know. I was going to say, I could see a prolonged <sighs> maybe intro Maybe I'm this a horny girl. Santa dumping margaritas down her cleave. <laughs> Oh, eating a melon. She'd come out eating, boom. Oh, my God. She'd come out with an entire watermelon and proceed to like cut it in half. And (laughs) and she'd whip out her melon baller and like hold it high up in the sky and then just start like rolling melon balls and pelting them at the audience. Oh, my God. That'd be great. Aye, aye, aye. Honeydew. God, if you need career advice, Tori, come to us. (laughs) Here's December 13th in Santa Barbara. She brought it back in 2009 for the Sinful Attraction Tour. It was sinful and it was attractive. And attractive. <laughs> That's my favorite joke of recent episodes. It's a really good one. Thanks. Um, she did it 16 times on that tour on the Hammond organ and the piano. And it was with the band. On the organ? Really? Yeah. This is the first time she did it. Here's August 8th in Detroit. Thank you. 
Lula took a break. 2011, no Night of Hunters. 2012, no Gold Dust Tour. So an unrepentant Geraldine's tour. I don't have a sound effect for that because what the hell is a Geraldine anyway? We'll get there in a couple years. You can just play that Jerry Springer audience chanting, Jerry, Jerry. (laughs) She did it twice on the synth. This is the first time she did it. This is August 20th, 2014 in Durham. And listen for a little Easter egg in the intro. And she did it again in the 2015 U.S. Summer Tour, one time on the synth and the piano. And this is from the 6th of November in Basel, Switzerland, at the Belois Sessions. Sorry, sorry, ladies and gents. We've come to the end of our episode and the end of Tallulah, as we know it. I don't know why she didn't bring it on the 2017 I have a strange feeling that this is one song that we'll never hear live again. Really? I don't know why. I I feel like Tori's going to be solo for the rest of her career and that this one will just kind of slip through the cracks for whatever reason. Obviously, I'm basing this on nothing, but just a hunch. I could be wrong. Interesting. I I disagree with you. I don't agree that she'll be solo for the rest of her career. I think that she's going to... You know, I saw Pat Benatar 
tour a year or two ago, maybe two or three years ago. She had a guitar player with her. Oh. It wasn't a band and she wasn't solo, mm-hmm. but she just had her husband, the guitar player. So I think maybe it would be really interesting to have Mark on stage with her doing some guitar parts because I don't think she would trust another guitarist at this point. It would be nice to have at least some interplay with another player on, mm-hmm. on stage. And I think she really shines when she's got someone else on stage with her, like that dialogue, you know? So I hope it's not the last time. Me too. I don't want to lose it. Thank you for listening, as always. If you like what we do, you can head over to patreon.com slash songs of where you can become a supporter. We have a lot of perks at a lot of different levels. We have tour all year, uh, where we interview tour people from all across the globe. Well, so far only from the United States, but we're going to go all across the globe. If anybody out there wants to be on tour all year, email us. Our intentions are good. Our next episode has Peter on, so that'll come out next week. We also have Drive All Night Plus, which we got something special in store for you this month. I can't say it yet, but coming up finally finally you don't know what it is no because you've they've been waiting for it for a really long time and i don't want to lead them on i definitely sound weird on that episode right (laughs) yes you do sound like a whole other person i know so that's coming up at the end of the month we're also going to get out not the red baron this month so thank you for your support thank you for listening head over to our website songsoftoryamus.com where you can sign up for our newsletter and hear all about all the things that we're doing and all the things we have in store follow us on our social at Songs of Tori Amos on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. What else should they do, David? That means rate us and review us on iTunes. In fact, grab the phone of your friend and go to their iTunes page and rate us from their phone, too. We need the ratings. It infuriates me when I go to iTunes and I type in Tori Amos and the podcasts that come up. We're not the first. Infuriates What's me. the first? Pitchfork. And I know they're a huge media company with a millions of listeners from their all their episodes pitchfork but because they have one episode with Tori Amos on it it comes up first before us even though we've made it our life's work I know to chronicle and, her catalog and also we love if you could like write a little something yeah write a little something a review. don't just and like hit it. the star no guilt no I mean, guilt not that we don't appreciate that yeah. but yeah. rate it and if you have time if you're stuck at the office uh, you know just rate it whatever just do it it's no big deal whatever yeah. Okay, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.
Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoryamis.com.